What is the ethos of Web3? First of all, it's like tokenization, using tokenization as a way to grow a project, grow an enterprise as a tool to incentivize certain kind of behavior. And then there's also the layer of value distribution, more equitable, more, you can call it decentralized value distribution of the value created by a entity. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host. And today we're going to be diving into how Web3 can disrupt some big name businesses and some issues around Web3 and also around NFTs and even macroeconomics with Tasha. She's a macroeconomist, entrepreneur, and an active advisor and investor in the Web3 space. She even writes a free newsletter that dissects the Web3 industry trends from a macro perspective, which you can find at TashaLabs.com. And I'm sure we're going to plug that later on in the podcast episode. But Tasha, how are you doing today? Thanks for coming on the pod. Hey, Josh, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm solid. We're ending the week with a podcast, and I've really enjoyed a lot of the Twitter threads you've put out covering like just the broader economic environment and also NFTs. So I find your, your take on things really interesting. Thank you. Can you please walk us through like how you got into crypto and how that led to you like writing and researching and investing in the space as well? Yeah, sure. So my background is in economics. I have a PhD in macroecon, and I've worked in macroeconomic consulting for many years. And I'm also a founder and entrepreneur. I own a Web2 SaaS company in audio publishing space. So I would say economics and technology, those are two of my biggest passions. And crypto is like combination of those two. So I'm fascinated about all the developments in the crypto space. Over time, what I found is that it's a very particular community in crypto, right? So we haven't achieved the real mass global scale adoption yet. It's still a pretty niche thing. A lot of the interlocutors and the things that you read about in initially, there are a lot of people writing about Bitcoin and monetary policy and from a really anti-authoritative perspective. When I read about those things, I oftentimes take a pause because to be honest, I don't think they know what they're talking about, especially a lot of the narratives in anti-establishment, maxi type of narratives, or the Bitcoin is going to be a cure of everything type of narrative. So I find myself more and more want to put my thoughts and analysis out there I try to do it in a way that is neutral and try to be as objective as possible. Obviously, nobody is objective. We all have the lens we use to look at the world, but at least I try. <laughs> I appreciate that. I think that some of the people who take that 
anti-authority perspective or everything needs to be 100% decentralized or anonymous, like that definitely pushes it too far. And there's scenarios where we get to that kind of case and some parts of crypto, but a lot of it's building blocks and definitely not like the next step, especially as we try to get adoption. So let's start off with like the economic side before we dive into NFTs and how they can disrupt some businesses. I want to get your take on kind of current market conditions. Obviously, everything's not financial advice, but I feel like I can't bring a PhD in macro econ on the pod and, and not get your take right now on like what we're seeing in the market. Like, have we seen the bottom or how are you thinking about what what's going on right now? You know, I can spend hours just talking about that. <laughs> I know I opened a dangerous can of worms <laughs> You here. just like opened a can of worms. But as you know, the market has been rebounding in both the risk asset, the U.S. equities and crypto market have been going up since the uh, middle of June. So we've had over two months of a bull run, if you will. If you look at the macroeconomic conditions, the market crash was initially triggered by the switch in monetary policy. So the monetary tightening had a huge effect on risk assets, equity, and crypto. And I would say it has a bigger impact on crypto because crypto tokens and crypto projects, they are even more early stage on average compared to the stocks that have already IPO'd. And also, it's such a small market it's really predominantly driven by new money inflow into the market to prop the price up. So anything that has a impact on liquidity is going to disproportionately impact crypto price compared to equity price. And the third factor is crypto is also global, but most of the token prices, it's denominated in US dollars. People have been trying to get people to denominate token prices in Ether and BTC, they haven't succeeded. So de facto, we have US dollar as the denominator for crypto prices. So when US dollar appreciates, when you have a global asset, that's not just people in the US buying it, you have huge user bases from Europe, from Asia. And when US dollar appreciates, that's going to have a negative impact on crypto prices more so compared to U.S. equities, which has overseas investors. So that has an impact too, but not nearly to the same extent as the global market, which crypto has, right? If you're talking about, are we seeing a bottom or are we going to have a bull run continue? You've got to look at, has any of that fundamental changed or not? I would argue those fundamentals have not changed. We've had, since the end of the last year, the fastest pace of interest rate increase in the United States and also to some extent globally. So if you look at is this trend going to continue, I don't see the reason why the Fed is going to change the tightening stance anytime soon. There may be a case to be said about the pace of that policy change, whether they are going to tighten slower or faster, since the inflation seems to have peaked at least in the short term you may argue they could be doing a slower pace of tightening, but let's not forget it's still at 8.5% the CPI inflation in the United States, which is way beyond <laughs> the actual targeted range of, for inflation. 
the bounce we've seen over the last two months that you mentioned from like June now through early August is maybe reacting to the tightening, but it's still not going back down. And so you don't view this as the bottom in. So in any market, you know, when you have such a sharp drawdown over a very short period of time, at some point you run out of sellers or the liquidations, at least temporarily, has been exhausted. And then you have the opportunity for a market rebound. If you look at the past bear markets, post the dot-com crash, for example, you had two, three times at least where the market rebounded 45 to like 60% over one month to three month period. But does that mean the market hit bottom at the time? No. But in 2002, there were multiple of those pretty significant scale of rebound. If you are a swing trader, this is a great environment. I hope everybody has been taking advantage of the recovery that was seen in the market over the past couple months. But do I think this is the end of a uh, bear market? I, I don't think so. And so how would you think about the Ethereum merge coming up? They just announced that that's going to be happening mid-September. The third test on Ethereum's testnets was completed successfully. Are you looking at this as a little bit of like buy the rumor, sell the news? Or do you think ETH alone could rally even if the broader crypto market doesn't? Or is it kind of just fall into the same analysis you just listed from the macro perspective? I do not have a crystal ball to tell you whether it's going to be by the news, you saw the rumor, or it's going to be straight up, or is it something else? I do not have that insight, I, and I don't have an opinion about that. What I know is crypto market is actually even more sensitive to macro conditions compared to traditional risk assets. And also, if ETH is going to have a bull market, it's very hard for other tokens to not have a bull market, given that ETH is such a large part of the market cap of crypto. So it's a part of many, many crypto investors' portfolio, right? It's very rarely you, do you have a crypto investor that does not hold ETH. So if ETH goes up, it's wealth effect, positive wealth effect that's going to drive buying power into other tokens. If there is a bull market in ETH, it would not be a standalone thing. That's my point. But is there going to be a bull market driven by ETH? I don't know. <laughs> That's good insight. I mean, I'm definitely not a swing trader. And I feel like I've mentioned that on the pod a lot. Like I'm just someone who buys and holds. I am definitely sitting in a lot of stables. But I think there's a lot of investors right now that got worried during the sharp drawback a couple months ago. And we're all trying to figure out right now, all right, is this rally temporary? Is it time to buy back in? I think I'm waiting a little bit longer, but also just dollar cost averaging in general. Along this macro discussion we're having, let's talk about NFTs from like the high level perspective for a second here. You had a good thread back in 2021, like end of 2021. In it, you said NFTs will grow because it democratizes asset creation. I thought that was an interesting take and kind of want to ask you some questions around that. So maybe my first one is from your perspective, like what are assets and how are NFTs playing a part in asset creation? From a high level, what is the asset? It's a tool that allows you to transfer the claim of ownership on economic output across space, across time. Every year, the economy produces GDP. 
Who owns that GDP? If you have cash, you can buy stuff, so you own a piece of that GDP. In that sense, it can be exchanged for a claim. It's a claim on the economic output. That's why cash is a asset. Same thing with, for example, real estate or the so-called store of value. What is being stored there? It's a claim on future economic output because you can exchange that for. Things that you need to buy, you need to use. That's being produced by in the economy. So that's on the high level. Any asset to fulfill this function of a asset, it needs to meet some criteria. It needs to be in limited supply. It needs to be durable, transferable. It needs to have a social consensus that says, "Okay, we all recognize this thing." As a asset that can store some value, meaning some claim to future economic output in it. So, if you look at NFT, what is an NFT? It's just a hash token on chain on the blockchain, right? So then you look at does it fulfill the criteria that we just mentioned? Can it be in limited supply? It doesn't have to be, but it can. You can programmably limit the supply of a type of NFT. Is it durable? Is it transferable? Yes, it's pretty hard to destroy because it's built on a decentralized databases, and then it can be there forever as long as this database exists, and it's very easy to transfer. Much easier to transfer compared to any type of physical assets, actually, which gives this asset more liquidity, and theoretically there is a price premium from liquidity. And the last thing is: Is there a social consensus? Gold, for example, there is a social consensus around it. People recognize: Okay, we all agree this thing has value. We can use this as a store of value. It basically, gold is like a database in in solid form. This consensus regarding NFT, it's being bootstrapped. So that's why you see people put so much emphasis on community. On the so-called Lindy effect, or the kind of social consciousness building effort surrounding NFTs, because everybody is trying to achieve that social consensus for their particular type of NFT. That all makes sense here, and I feel like what you just outlined was showing how NFTs can be an asset, and I feel like that begs the question a little bit: like, should it be an asset that we build that consensus around, and? Within that thread that you had put out, you laid an argument that there is a global asset shortage, and that you know, NFTs can fill in for some of this demand and generate that store of value. And I was kind of curious, like, why do you think there is this asset shortage, and why do NFTs then, given the fact that they do have the characteristics of what an asset can be, like, why do they fill in here? A main factor, I would say, that is driving the global asset shortage. Is the growth of emerging markets over the past twenty years? So you have this part of the world, a lot of it in Asia, for example, that has created a lot of new, like the GDP growth has been very high over the past twenty years. So a lot of the new wealth gets created, but those wealth, like again, we talk about the function of the asset is transfer that claim on future economic output across time. So when you create like this GDP, or you cannot all consume today, right? You get to store it for the future. 
So that needs asset to be stored. So traditionally, you have real estate, equities. Those are the traditional types of like asset that can carry that kind of time transfer function for your future claims on economic filing. It's why the real estate market and equity market in Korea and China are so crazy. <laughs> the speculation and the bubble is on a different level compared to the speculation in the mature market, like in the United States, because there is this imbalance between the demand for asset and the supply for asset. Because the equity market is relatively immature and relatively shadow in those countries. Most of the time, you know, that's why everybody is like storing their values in real estate. So I think what I'm hearing a little bit is like what's going on right now is a someone in PhD econ is talking to someone who's trying to understand it in very simple terms. What I think I'm taking away is there's a lot of parts of the world that are gaining economic maturity and have rising GDPs, and they need places to put their money to invest their money. And in a lot of those countries, like real estate prices are high, and equity options are low because their markets may not be as mature as like the U.S. market. And so. There's an opportunity here for these NFTs to be a form of asset creation because they're so transferable around the entire world that just opens up the market for them to find ways to put their money in. Right? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the emerging markets are going to buy all the NFTs. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you look at a global level, there is a supply demand imbalance regarding assets in general. So that creates the opportunity for new asset classes to emerge. NFT could be. One of them. The other factor is after the GFC, after the global financial crisis, you actually destroy some asset classes, such as subprime mortgage securities, <laughs> because those turn out to not fulfill the function of asset very well. Actually, you you destroy some asset supply after the global financial crisis. The quote I want to share just from that thread is: "You said NFT is democratizing asset creation and producing a new generation of store of value." That help to meet the demand for assets in a new global financial paradigm. So you kind of mentioned after the last financial crisis, some asset classes get destroyed, and right now we're going through a, a period of time where some new ones are being created and being experimented with. Exactly. Well, cool. Let's go from that macro perspective and maybe talk about something a little bit more micro. Let's talk about Web three business ideas. You had a fantastic thread. I think you listed thirty five different businesses and. In ways that NFTs and crypto can disrupt them, so I want to run through some of those with you. The first one being Web three social. So I think the way I looked at it is, and I'd like to break it down. Let's throw out a topic. So you did like Meta and Facebook. So I'm calling that social, and talk about the current business model and then how the Web three business model could work. So for Meta and Facebook, you know the current business model is. They provide this free social media platform. They make money and finance everything through their ad business and selling of data. So, from your words, like how would the Web three business model work for like a social media disruptor? No, first of all, I put out these ideas because I want to help people to think about if we live in a world where the Web three ethos or business. Models are predominant kind of way to run enterprises or run economic going concerns. What would it look like? 
I'm not saying my ideas are brilliant. They could be totally stupid ideas. It could be like a lot of them would not be feasible. But that's not the point. <laughs> I'm not saying all you entrepreneurs just go take one of those ideas and run with it. My point is how things could look like. I think there's so much value in that. I think that's the Web three landscape in general right now. There are some companies executing on certain businesses, but a lot of it is theorizing, brainstorming, and just having a vision and trying things. So I definitely took that the same way, not as a hundred percent. This is how you disrupt, but this is a way to think about how Web three could play a part in these different industries. Yes, let me step back before we talk about these like specific ideas. So, to me, what is the ethos of Web three? First of all, it's like tokenization, using tokenization as a way to grow a project, grow an enterprise, as a tool to incentivize certain kind of behavior. And then there's also the layer of value distribution, more equitable, more you can call it decentralized value distribution. Of the value created by a entity, those are two big things to me about Web three in terms of the innovations that we can see from Web three. So if you look at things from that lens, now let's talk about social media, Facebook, Meta, or Instagram, or whatnot. So the idea that I propose is that you could have a social media platform where people posting content, and you reward people tokens. For posting content, and whoever gets more engagement gets more likes and favors and comments, so win more tokens. And on the other hand, you have advertisers who want to get access to that audience; they will pay in that same token. So that will give your token value, and at the same time, it will transfer value from the advertisers directly to the users of the platform. Instead of transfer value to that centralized entity, which is called a company, that's one version of how you would execute that that Web three type of vision with a social platform. There can be many other different ways. Would this really require a large number of users, or is this kind of cycle where users post content and get rewarded with tokens, and advertisers like buy ads in the form of the token? Is that also possible in smaller numbers? Because right now, social media apps are really the requirement is they have to be large. You know, they need a mass amount of users and attention. And so, I'm wondering if this kind of gives social media platforms an opportunity to operate while still having a smaller user base and being more niche. I think a social platform that has a small user base is a oxymoron, because these are network type of businesses. What that means is, when you add one more user, the cost of adding that user marginally goes down. So, the more user you have, the more profit you have. The better the network is. So, a while ago, I wrote about this in another article. Is that because I'm very bullish about like utility tokens. So the tokens that you use to, not necessarily as you know speculation or as a digital gold, but as a way to incentivize a certain behavior to drive value distribution. Would an example of that be ApeCoin? Well, we can talk about that. But the one that we just described, the social token, advertisers pay in that token and being received by users who comment and posting, that is a utility token. So I'm bullish about this type of tokens, but I want to emphasize. In order for tokenization to work for any project, first of all, you need to have a viable product. 
which is the problem with most of Web3, I would say 95% of Web3 projects, so-called, is that we don't have a product. The product is the token, <laughs> though it was uh, being disguised as something else, but nobody cares about something else. They just care about a token. So you need to have a viable product and you better have a big enough size of the market that you can meaningfully increase the demand in that market. For example, if you are like a local diner in a small town, will you do well tokenized? I don't think so, because your market size is like 5,000 people. How much can you really increase? Increase it to 6,000 and you hit the maximum. But for like internet businesses in industries that you don't have a very constrained upper limit about your market size, this works better, right? And thirdly, you better have decreasing marginal cost. Having network effect is one reason that will allow you to have a decreasing marginal cost. Meaning when you add one more user, when you add one more person who's like using your product and or you're providing products and services for, the cost of doing that progressively reduces. Or you have businesses that have huge fixed cost, like telecom companies. AT&T, T-Mobile, they have built their network already. You add one more user on the network, it just helps reduce the cost, actually. It does not like add to like a huge cost of that company, of that infrastructure. It's not the same thing if you run a restaurant. If you have like a capacity of uh, 50 patrons in the restaurant, you add another five customers, your kitchen hit the capacity if you want to have more customers, you've got to invest in bigger kitchens and more staff and more materials, and you do not have decreasing marginal cost. So you look at the tokenization, it's a powerful tool, but you need to hit some benchmark for that tool to actually work for the business. Maybe we'll talk about a different business case here that's a little bit less token influenced. And that one you threw out Costco. So Costco was another business that you thought Web3 could potentially disrupt. And this one's kind of through membership NFTs. So a different take. And so like Costco's business model right now, it's membership based, and there's no ability to rent out your membership to other people. It's really only yours. I do think you can add like guests to it. But for the purposes of this conversation, really not important. But how would Web3 influence like Costco's business model? One idea is you can have a membership as NFT, which can be traded and also which can be rented on the secondary market for holders to have a rental income that you can give people temporary access to Costco stores and to get a bulk discount. But maybe people only need it some of the time, not all the time. So this lowers the cost of the membership for members and increases the number of customers and turnovers for the stores. You know, Costco, I just picked it as an example because it's a well-known enterprise, right? So, but you can think of this can work for many different kinds of scenarios. I'm not saying like Costco would or should adopt this model because they already have their existing business model. And part of that relies on people not using their membership. 
And that was something I was going to ask you, like, are they banking on people not coming all the time? Because that's kind of like a gym membership to an extent. Exactly. So it's the same thing. I have Amazon Prime, like many people have that. If you actually don't buy stuff and don't have stuff delivered, you're just paying the Amazon Prime it's free money for Amazon, right? If your existing business model relies on that, you definitely do not want liquidity for your membership rights. But if you want more people coming through your doors that are members, then maybe this is something you could think about because that would allow people who aren't using it every day to pass it on to someone who would. You will have to do the math, right? So you will have to do the math in terms of the people who are members that are not using your membership rights, the free money you get from that. If you open up the secondary market, you will get higher demand. But does the profit coming from that higher demand offset the loss of dormant membership revenue that you can get? That's a calculation for existing businesses, right? But for a new business, that trade-off does not exist when you are just uh, trying to structure your, your business model, right? That's also one of the reasons why I said you better have declining marginal cost as you acquire more users. Because if you have constant marginal cost or God forbid, increasing marginal cost. Why would you want more users? <laughs> There's no point, <laughs> okay? So it's only when you have decreasing marginal cost that gives you this opportunity because there is a cost of tokenization in different formats. But if you can use that tokenization as a tool to get more customers in the door or to really uplift your demand for your products and services, and for that to actually benefit your bottom line instead of hurting your bottom line, then this becomes feasible. It kind of makes me think about some speculation around the Cybertruck for Tesla that I'd read about a while back on how one of the things they could move into once full self-auto driving is in place is Tesla Cybertruck owners could rent out their truck when it's not in use because Elon said something like, a car is actually only in use one-fifth of its actual like life for you know 80% of the, a car's life. It's just sitting on the curb or in the driveway or something. And so finding ways to allow people to get more use out of it was something that could be beneficial. It made me think of that. There's probably a way to rent out your, your car via NFTs in some world. That is the thing that you can, you can accomplish with or without a Web3 model, right? But I would say you have a utility token. If that model is actually viable, having a utility token, it's going to supercharge the growth, right? As we've seen with a lot of Web3 projects that didn't stick, but they had their run because of the token. <laughs> well, let's talk about one more business idea really quick before getting into another topic I want to touch on. But so gaming. You threw out, you know, Activision Blizzard. I've talked a lot about gaming on this podcast in terms of how NFTs can be used for in-game assets. But I think you brought up kind of the cold start problem and how NFTs can be used to kind of kickstart something from off the ground. So can you give me the, the quick deep dive into how Web3 could help a video game publisher to get their game off the ground? Yeah, this is not just limited to video game. You can think of it as any company that has a series of products. So the video game company, you have different games and you have players for those different games. So I play one game, may not play the other. If you have new games come out, you want people to play those, right? So you can use a utility token as a incentive mechanism as a way to promote your new game. 
and use the revenues and sales from the game to buy back the token, for example, in order to support the value of that token. So you can have like a platform-wide token where people can play the game and get rewarded with that token, but disproportionately favors new games as a way to market your newer games. I think a trend that I saw, you touched on it a couple of times and then reading through the thread for sure, like a trend that I saw was rewarding users through tokens. And so the token price is supported through purchasing a percentage through the revenue. That is one way. Yeah. There could be a world where there's lots of different tokens, you know, tokens for, for the games, for the businesses, the social media companies, and like, will they have material value enough to actually drive user behavior? I mean, it seems like your thesis is maybe they could. That's why I said you better have a viable product that people are actually going to pay money for. Otherwise, you see in like so many of these play-to-earn games, which is just disguised the Ponzi's. But when you have a product that's actually viable, that you actually have sticky users, you actually have cash flow and have profit, you can use that profit to benefit the tokens, to support the value of the tokens. That's why I'm, I'm bullish about like a so-called Web 2.5. You add tokenization as a marketing or as a growth engine for more traditional businesses with more traditional real-world products and services, but there's a growth benefit by adopting a tokenization model, provided that the company actually has a viable product. There are so many products and services in the world that people actually want to buy, right? They don't have a problem with viability. But I say, especially as a newer company or as a new product, you have the issue of you got to spend money in marketing in order to acquire users. Especially for newer companies, your cash flow is tight. So where do you get the marketing budget? Now you can go out and raise funding from venture capital or crowdsourcing funding from the public. That's an option not every company can afford, right? VC back to companies are few and far between. So, but this is a mechanism. Basically, you, you can reward users with tokens where the tokens can be used to redeem products and services from you in the future, or you can use the future profits of the company to buy back those tokens. Both are ways to actually give real value to the token, right? So what you're actually doing is pulling your future cash flows forward to today to support the marketing expenditure, to pay for the marketing expenditure. Because in order for a token to have a real value, there's a cost to you, okay? It's not like just min stuff out of thin air because in the future, you got to have a utility for the token. That's why it's called a utility token because it needs to have utility. Some projects have been able to get away with it, right? But I don't think we're going to be seeing that in the long term. It needs to be able to be used to do redeem products and services. Or you need to, just like central banks do open market operation, you have to go in the market to support the value of the token with the cash you will have in the future. So in order to do that, you need a viable product that people want to buy. You outlined some problems with Web3 and, you know, maybe one more I want to ask before we do our 1-2 Web3. 
section of the pod is I've seen you talk about too how we need better one-to-one mappings of NFTs to underlying assets and how like most projects today don't correspond to a physical asset. Like, do you think we're going to, we talked a lot about tokens, but do you think for NFTs, we're going to be seeing a lot of them actually map to a physical asset in the future to help give them some of that value? No, first of all, I think that the technology for NFT today is very primitive. 20 years from now, we're going to look at what we call NFT today and laugh about it. The thing is that this one-to-one mapping, the way I see it, is a huge problem. Without this, it's very hard to use NFT to represent any type of real-world assets. If you can use NFT to bring real-world assets on-chain, it will open the door to lots of you know lending and borrowing opportunities being collateralized by real-world assets. You will bring a whole lot more liquidity into the on-chain economy. So it will open the door to hugely, hugely accelerate the adoption and expand the scale of Web3 economy. But in order to do that, you got to make sure the NFT actually represents some assets, right? You got to make sure that NFT actually does that job well. Now, today, it does not do that job well. I can say, okay, this NFT I created, it represents my house, but I can create another NFT point to the same house. Who, who says I cannot, right? So in the traditional economy, that problem is solved by a centralized entity. You have the title registration office of the government that keeps the record of all the real estate titles, of who owns the which property, right? You have a database centralized to keep track of that. And if you sell a property, you got to involve the escrow company, the title company. What does the title company do? The title company makes sure you own the property and the rights are clear. You are, have the right to sell it. This is your house and you're selling the correct things, so on and so forth, right? So all this transaction cost. So crypto people like NFT real estate people <laughs> like to say, okay, it's all going to be programmed. So escrow company, no need title company, no need for that. We got to reduce transaction costs, but not so fast, okay? Today, you still cannot make that happen because unless you have a Web3 title company that has a social consensus to say, okay, this is actually makes sense. Otherwise, nothing will prevent me from not having the one-to-one mapping. I can create like a thousand NFT on my houses and sell it to a thousand different people and none of them know each other, so they will not find out. Getting Web3 consensus to replace some of those centralized entities we rely on today is going to be a very tough challenge. And I don't have the answers on how to figure that out, but you bring up a really good point there. I think that that's really a central problem that we need to solve in order to bring any kind of real world assets into the on-chain economy. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for that breakdown. I thought that was interesting. I hope everyone listening to the pod kind of appreciated us thinking through how Web3 could be applied to some businesses because it's a refreshing conversation when so many times we're just talking about funny NFTs and that are cartoons or that have crazy values. So it's good to talk about actual business ideas in Web3. Well, let's wrap up and do our one, two Web3. I got three questions for you. And the first being, who's an influential Web3 creator, entrepreneur, or collector that's inspired or educated you? I don't know. Uh, like, for example, I listen to a lot of podcasts. You know, I listen to a fair number of crypto podcasts, like Unchained with Laura Shin, for example, Zero Knowledge, Up Only, The Defiant, 
Solana podcast, A Money Movement with Jeremy Alire. Those are the ones I like. Hopefully we throw the Unstoppable podcast in that rotation. <laughs> but no, those are, all, those are all great ones too. I listen to them as well. Cool. And second question, what's your favorite NFT? Hands down is the one I created, Tasha's Destroyed a Diamond NFT. I did see that and I read through that thread breakdown you did on it as well. Very cool. If you're listening, definitely go to her Twitter page and find that because I think it's a, a good example of just experimenting too, you know, and tying something to a, a physical. You can go to OpenSea and just search for Tasha's Destroy a Diamond. That is an issue, like the one-to-one -one mapping actually is an issue. I try to like document how I destroy this diamond and how I create this NFT as a proof, but people keep asking me, okay, none of this matters because you could go create another NFT representing this diamond tomorrow. So that's the problem, right? Yep. Third question to wrap it up. In five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse that we're just not thinking about yet? I'm not sure that will be the craziest thing. What what I want to see happen, though, is the like VR technology to move much faster because I don't like these video calls. I don't know if you experience it's It's so exhausting to sit in video calls compared to talking to people in real time. What I think happens is because you only get like a flat image of person, right? And the normal personal interaction, you can actually absorb like holistic information about the person, helps you make make decisions. But with uh, limited information like this, like your brain has to work like really extra hard to actually fill in the gap. So it would be great if we have actual like metaverse that incorporates like more holistic interactions beyond the image and sound. I've gotten several comments around, you know, that telepresence and improved VR experiences to this answer. So I'd agree that it would be a lot of fun. I don't know if it'll be easier to engage in that kind of like communication. I piloted a, a VR program at a consulting firm that I worked at a couple years ago. And we had people joining in from like, I think it was eight different states around the country. And while it did increase engagement and people enjoyed the experience, I mean, putting on a headset, getting into a metaverse, you know what I mean? Like, being in an environment where you actually feel safe enough to be in that kind of VR environment too, that like that's a process too. So it requires more upfront effort, but maybe as the tech gets better, that effort will get decreased because right now just clicking Zoom and opening is, is the easiest. It's not there yet. Good answers. So can you let us know where we can find you and follow you after we listen to this pod? Oh, yeah. If you're on Twitter, I'm Tasha Labs on Twitter. And my website is TashaLabs.com. And I have a free newsletter to help people get smarter about Web3, which is TashaLabs.com slash newsletter. So you're welcome to subscribe. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time today, for breaking down the macro econ environment, for running through Web3 business ideas with me and, and just giving your perspective. So with that, thank you, everybody, for listening to the Unstoppable podcast. Coming out with episodes every single week, please follow us and subscribe if you're on YouTube like the video and subscribe there too. It means a lot. With that, I'll see you in the metaverse and I'll catch you next week. Peace out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. 
tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you and thank you so much for listening.